Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome to Head to Toe, a healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Marie McMillan, a nurse, writer, and podcast creator. Those of you joining me for the first time, hey, thanks for being here. I like to interview healthcare professionals and turn their stories into a neat show for your listening pleasure. Sometimes I do the talking, but mostly it's my guests, and today is the first episode I have put up since going on maternity leave. Thank you, everyone, for the well wishes, those of you returning from earlier 2019 head-to-toe episodes, and the long-time listeners out there. Thanks for tuning in again. Here is the very quick update. I had a baby boy. He's awesome. He's in the 99th percentile for weight and height, and I'm guessing the less than 15th percentile for ability to sleep on his own. Being a mom blows my mind. It's really hard, and it's really awesome. Anyway, I'm here recording shows again and happy to share with you this episode's guest, Dr. Jonathan Gelber, a sports medicine physician and author of a new book. Please enjoy our conversation. Let me begin by saying thank you, Dr. Gelber, for being on my nerdy podcast, Head to Toe. Welcome. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about sports medicine, his new book that's coming out. Let's start with you. What got you into sports and then what made you go into medicine and then pick sports medicine specifically out of all the medical things out there? Yes, I've always been a lifelong athlete, played sports growing up, mostly baseball, basketball and soccer, martial arts as well. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And the one doc I would always see was my friend's dad, who was an orthopedic surgeon. So when I decided I wanted to become a doctor, which I knew at a very young age, I even had my fresh Fisher-Price doctor's kit, which my mom and dad love to keep still today, that that same Fisher-Price kit I had when I was a kid. And so we actually decided, you know, I want to go to med school. I said, well, what does my friend's dad do? He's an orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine. So that's what I want to do. So I knew almost from high school that I wanted to do orthopedic sports medicine. Wow. that's And that's kind of a subset of orthopedic sports medicine in general, right? Yeah. So orthopedics in general deals with bones and ligaments. And you do a five-year residency. So that you probably do a little bit of everything when you're a resident. But then if you want to specialize, you do a fellowship and that's a year. So you can do sports medicine, you can do joint replacement, you can do spine, you can do oncology, uh, you can do hand, you can do just a shoulder fellowship. So there's some definite subspecialty areas of orthopedic, or you can do general, in which case you deal with you know, a lot of different body parts. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the kind of work you do now. So I do orthopedic sports medicine, and I am part of a practice where I have partners who do joint replacement and do hand. And majority of what I do is arthroscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. So mostly what I'm doing are rotator cuff tears or labral tears where the shoulder has dislocated and continues to be unstable in the shoulder, in the knee, ACL ligaments for stability, meniscus, some hip arthroscopy as well, which is a growing field. Uh, maybe some elbow surgeries, especially ligament surgeries. So the majority of what I'm dealing with is arthroscopic or what we call pinhole camera surgery. So there's small instruments and a small camera so we can look inside the joint and see what we're doing. Awesome. So your clientele is probably like uh, athletes from a wide range of sports that I'm thinking of all those body parts, like definitely baseball pitchers, but also basketball, also all sorts of things probably. Yeah. I mean, every sport certainly has its own injuries and its own patient population. But even as we get older, there are certain things that you don't see in younger people, like rotator cuff tears. So it's very 
uncommon to see a rotator cuff tear in like a young pitcher, for instance. So things like rotator cuff tears end up being like late 40s, early 50s, or when you first start to see rotator cuff tears. So I like to say I see patients from 10 to 100, and just really depending on their activity level, how old they are, that really can help you decide even you know while you're first talking to the patient, what's going on based simply on their age and the body part that's bothering them. When I was uh, doing a little bit of research here for our, our chat, uh, when I when I first think of sports medicine, I think of like, you know, like the professional sports teams and like, oh, the team doctor that gets quoted and like, you know, the injury articles on ESPN. That's probably not what everybody does. But I, I'm wondering, how do, how does one become that and how is that different from what you do? Yeah, so all the doctors, they all have day jobs. So the docs for the Knicks, the Cavaliers, Mm -hmm. the Red Sox, they are all practicing orthopedic surgeons, and they're also part of a team. So you have primary care docs, you might have neurologists. But if we're talking just about the orthopedic sports doc, I mean, they all have day jobs. Um, They might be working for the Cleveland Clinic or the Hospital for Special Surgery. They might be in a private practice in California. And so they have a day job. And once that day job is over, then you go and you cover these games and you might go to the training room. So a lot of places also are covering colleges and universities. So maybe once or twice a week, you have a training room where you go see the university athletes or you go see the professional athletes. And a lot of that is based on the affiliation of the hospital you have. Other parts of it are volunteer work. So I've done some trips with Team USA Wrestling. And so the way that works is that when Team USA Wrestling qualifies for something, they have a pool of medical docs. And so where you are in the pool, you get picked to go. So I was fortunate enough, I've gone to Lima, Peru with the junior team. And then a couple months ago, I actually went to Siberia for the World Freestyle Cup with the, the senior team. So that was something I volunteered for because I was part of the medical pool. Wow, that's really cool. That's like way fun. And then hopefully you don't have to do a whole lot of work while you're there. <laughs> right. I mean, certainly the upkeep of the athletes, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot harder when you're traveling, you know, to Siberia and you're the only doc. So you have to really pack your bag with a lot of different things. You know, when you're at the arena, for instance, I mean, you have a training room, you have staff, athletic trainers. I mean, it's much, much different when you're at the big arena where you have tons of supplies than when you're traveling on the road. It makes it much more difficult when you're traveling on the road, especially to a foreign country. because You don't know, you know what's going to be there when you get there. So you definitely want to overpack and make sure you have what you need when you need it. Mm-hmm. So your own evolution, it sounds like you always knew this is what you wanted to do. Is it, you know, however many years you've been in practice, is it everything that you've wanted it to be? And what surprised you about your practice? Yeah, I mean, sports medicine is great. You know, you it, it's nice to be around young, active people. That's really a nice patient population. But older patients as well need your help. And so, you know, even though a doc may be you know, getting a running back back to the high school or college or even professional, that's a subset of the amount of people that have knee pain and shoulder pain or back pain, depending on what you're looking at. So, you know, while we do like to focus on what, you know, quote unquote, you call an athlete, it's really not the dominance of what you do. You also have to help the community. So I think when you, you're looking at, I want to do sports medicine and be great if you can get involved and, and just treat athletes if that's what you want. But really, when you're a part of a medical group or you're part of a hospital, I mean, you're treating patients of all ages and all backgrounds. And that's a big part of what you do as a, as a doctor, let alone a surgeon. Can you tell us 
an extraordinary story from your practice or work experience, something memorable, either positive or negative, something that you take with you because of its meaning or wow factor. When someone asks you, you know, what's what's the best thing that's happened to you in your work so far? What's what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's one best experience. I mean, certainly getting people back to play as a sports doc or back to their job. I mean, that's something we, we do all the time and it feels great when that happens. Some things for me that have been sort of interesting is a lot of times because I talk about being a young kid and looking at the sports docs and wanting to be them is, you know, every now and then you catch yourself, whether you're at spring training uh, or when I was in, you know, Siberia and fans are asking for autographs from the wrestlers that you're with, you're like, wow, I'm now on the other side of that line. Because I remember being on the other side of the fence asking for autographs. And now you're on the other side with the players taking care of them. So that was kind of a cool experience a few times that I, I you know, stepped back and noticed that unfolding. Do you still have the Fisher Price set up at your parents' place? Yeah, I think it's still in the storage unit in Florida, which we cleared out actually not too long ago. And, and I found a ton of toys, like really cool 80s toys, I like Ghostbusters and He-Man and yes. G.I. Joe. And I, and I gave them to my kids and they played with them. They broke a lot of them, but like it was really cool to see like my own kids playing with the same toys I played with in the 80s. That's awesome. Do your kids play sports? Yeah, they uh, they played soccer this year. So I have four kids. Three boys and a girl. One's about to turn nine. The other boys are seven and five. And our girl is three. And our girl is doing ballet and tap. And she loves that. She does a little bit of soccer at school. But the older boys, they all played soccer this year. And I think we're going to do basketball in the winter uh, and then maybe baseball in the spring, which in general, that's really important. I mean, certainly we can start talking about the book and, and the different lessons that are learned in sports medicine. But in general, that's if anyone you know can learn anything about sports injuries in the youth, it's that you shouldn't be playing the same sport year round. You, you should try and vary it by season if you can. Mm-hmm. Excellent segue, Dr. Gelber. Thank you very much. <laughs> Go ahead and talk about your book, which title is Tugger Woods Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Careers, Sports and Society. I, I read it. It was awesome. It, was, it took me a long time to read on maternity leave because I have a little thing I have to hold now. But yeah, it was. it's really great. I'm a huge sports fan. I grew up like singing the Notre Dame fight song and just, you know, watching football with my dad and playing soccer and dance and all that. And so I, I come from a huge sports background and then being an ICU nurse for 10 years. Also, I, I really appreciated the crossover of both medicine and sports. And I think you wrote it really wonderfully. A lot of the analogies and the stories, a lot of things that I didn't know about, specifically Magic Johnson, like I was a, a little too young to really remember his whole story and his you know effect on AIDS and HIV. And you know, I'm going to let you talk. Let's start with a, kind of a brief review of what the COBRA effect is. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different stories, a lot of different athletes, and, and many of them did take place, you know, around the 1990s. And then, you know, some are a little earlier, some are a little later. Uh, A lot of them are stories many people are familiar with, but we really didn't know that they affect continued beyond that career or beyond that sport and affected society as a whole. And that's where the Cobra effect comes in. And that's actually the first chapter in the book. And the Cobra effect is an idea of unintended consequences. And so the story of the Cobra effect is one that takes place in Imperial India. There's too many venomous snakes, specifically cobras. So the government got together and they decided that they would come up with a bounty program so that they would reduce the number of snakes by giving money away for snake skins. So if villagers would kill the snakes, bring them the dead snake skins, then they would give them a money and then the villagers would get money and the snake population would go down. 
So snakeskin started coming in by the basket load and bounties were going out, but none of the snake population was decreasing. And so after some investigation, the government officials found out that there were actually snake farms being produced. So these snakes were being farmed simply to be killed for the bounty money. So when that was discovered, they killed the bounty program. So the farmers had all these snakes. They had nowhere else to sell them anymore. So they released the snakes back into the wild and increased the snake population. So while they had a well-meaning idea to reduce the snake population, the way they went about it did not work. And in fact, they had not only an unintended consequence, but an opposite consequence where the snake population actually went up. So that idea of an unintended and possibly opposite consequence is called the cobra effect. And that's really the framework that I look at each of these sports stories for those unintended consequences. It's a really great analogy. I think that applies to a lot of things in medicine. And I, and I like a lot of the examples that you, you use. You know, you went, uh, talked about Tommy John surgery, which specifically relates to baseball, the NASCAR stories, and then Tiger Woods. What made you pick the examples of specific athletes and their stories outlined in the book? Well, the Tommy John one was an easy one because as a sports medicine doc, you know, as we talked about before, like that's my world. So mm-hmm. the youth epidemic, the fact that the greatest number of Tommy John or elbow reconstruction surgeries are happening in 15 to 19 year olds is shocking to many people. And you see it as many view it as a rite of passage. There is a lot of miseducation surrounding the surgery, where nearly 50% of folks surveyed, whether they were high school athletes or coaches or even members of the Major League Baseball media, nearly 50% saw it as a performance enhancement, which is really not true. Nearly 50% didn't even know you needed an injury to have the surgery. So, you know, that was one of the ideas where, you know, even Tommy John himself has sort of come into view as well as his son as well, is this surgery really such a good thing if we have such an epidemic because it can be seen as a rite of passage or something to fall back on? So we have this surgery that helped Tommy John. It got him back to at least half of his career after the surgery. And so because we have it, do we have this epidemic because we did such a good thing for Tommy John? And so using that idea with the Cobra effect, I I looked at these other stories like Magic Johnson and Dale Earnhardt, Tiger Woods, like you mentioned, Len Bias, Hank Gathers, other folks in the stories uh, really gave us these ideas where we were well-intentioned, but sometimes maybe we were too reactionary. We didn't analyze the data well. We misinterpreted the data. A lot of things, you know, flaws as human beings that we do when we have these injuries or tragedies. And unfortunately, our attempts to react to them often created problems in themselves. Was there one vignette that you think is, if you were going to had a limited time to speak about your book to anyone, what's like the one vignette of athlete or their story that you would you, you think influenced you most to write the book in the first place? Yeah, the one athlete that I think, having written the book and looking back, I was surprised as to the greatest effect on society would be Len Bias. Mm-hmm. And so Len, for the listeners who don't recognize that name, Len Bias was a college basketball superstar. He was labeled the next Michael Jordan. There was no doubt he was going to be great. And he was the number one draft pick and he was drafted by the Boston Celtics and he was going to play alongside greats such as Larry Bird. And the weekend of the draft, after he was drafted number one, he went back home and then he went to college to hang out with his friends and Len ended up overdosing on what was likely cocaine. So Len died from a drug overdose and this was in the war on drugs era. 
So especially crack cocaine was the most feared drug of society. And anything that we could do to fight the war on drugs, especially the crack cocaine epidemic, was used to help push legislation of these drug laws that were formed in response to lend bias. We actually have lend bias drug laws. And what those laws say are, if you're caught with a certain amount of powdered cocaine or a certain amount of crack cocaine, you meet a mandatory minimum sentence. But the problem was Len died of powdered cocaine, not crack cocaine. But when the laws were formed in response to Len's death, they were weighted 100 to 1 in terms of how much crack cocaine would trigger that threshold. So what ended up happening was a lot of African-Americans, young users or street dealers were getting caught, not these big level high drug level drug dealers, which is the powdered cocaine form, or even the Caucasian males who had the powdered cocaine, weren't getting caught and triggering these minimum sentences. It was the young African-Americans. So even today now, we, we're still talking about how can we change these drug laws. And this presidency and the last presidency have actually tried to change these drug laws retroactively. And it's all because of the drug laws and mandatory minimum sentences that occurred in response to Len Bias's death, a basketball player's death of drugs. Yeah, that story really resonated with me as well. And then the later chapters on racial inequity in, in the NFL sort of, I think, echoed that a little bit as well. It's just it's so relevant to what is happening today, has happened in the past. And it just, you know, anyone who likes sports and medicine, you just need to read the book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good it's, it's a good mishmash of awesome things. Uh, notably, I, I didn't notice any female athletes discussed. I'm not like calling you out or anything. It's just I, I wondered if that was because most women's sports aren't big enough as compared to men's sports in the public eye to have had a Cobra effect. Or I was just curious about the lack of that in, in the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You know, I haven't I haven't looked at that. You're honestly the first person to point it out. And it's a, a pretty valid point. The other thing is, you know, other, like another sport like hockey, for instance, wasn't represented. And it's mostly just, I think, a lack of familiarity of the stories from my perspective mm. to know, you know, who I could choose. Because a lot of these stories I was familiar with before writing the book. So I knew where to go to begin my research. The stories, you know, with some female athletes or other sports, I didn't delve into because I was not as familiar. So perhaps if there is a second book, I can start looking into other sports and certainly female athletes as well. So we can get some deeper stories in there. For sure. For sure. I'm, and I'm not calling your book like not deep. I think it's it's wonderful. I was just I was curious as <laughs> to the that hole there. And and I guess the, the sports and stories that come to my mind from like from women's sports. And I think maybe it's just because these stories aren't out there in the public yet. And they're they're not as big as, say, you know, Len Bias or Michael Jordan or NASCAR or Tommy John or who's the NFL quarterback? You know, deflate gate. I'm a mom. I don't sleep much. Oh, Tom Brady. What's his name? Tom yeah. Brady. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Like everyone it, out there right? is I'm like, glad he's, as a New York Giants fan, I'm glad that's what Tom Brady's known for is deflate gate. <laughs> Sorry. But, but it's true. I mean, and if, and just thinking off the top of my head, and mm -hmm. I forget her name, but there is actually a really interesting story about the medical and genetic disease Marfan syndrome. So, Marfan syndrome mm -hmm. is a disorder of collagen. And there was a USA volleyball player who died of a heart condition related to her Marfan syndrome. And so that's actually a very interesting story. Um, and that's certainly one that relates to even society now, because we're, we're actually starting to learn a little bit more in society about Marfan syndrome, 
Uh, one of the ac- an actress, uh, I forget her name. I think maybe it was Lena Dunham. Uh, one just came out with the fact that she has Mar fans. So mm. we're actually starting to see Mar fans in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a real issue. If it does go undiagnosed, you can die from a heart condition related to it. And it is often found in athletes, especially those like swimmers and volleyball players who have these giant wingspans. Yeah. And so there is a potential story right there. Yeah, yeah, the... The cardiac nurse in me is like, yes, I can name like 15 people I've taken care of who are like who had Marfan syndrome. And it's it's very um. there's different kinds of Marfans. As far as I know, like there's different genetic markers, but it's very familial runs in families. And when I take care of them there, it's after they've had heart surgery because the tissue in their heart has gone you know, flimsy or not well, the valves aren't working right. And so we have to replace them. They do really well after surgery because like you said, a lot of them are very fit or athletes are super tall. They have these really long wingspans is kind of a telltale sign. And then also the way like their hands are shaped, something about the ratio of like fingers to their palm. But anyway, yeah, there's there's a lot out there. And you're right, it, they can cause a lot of these heart conditions. And then uh makes me think about a lot of the screening that happens, you know, especially in younger athletes, like, you know, the sports physicals you have to do for high school sports. And, you know, do we really need to EKG everybody that, you know, gets signs up for youth basketball? Maybe not, because then that can lead to, like you said, another epidemic of, you know, I, I think about the, the Apple Watch and how it has like the single lead EKG now <laughs> and how that's probably a nightmare for ER physicians out there. Someone walks in and is like, oh, my heart rate's 27. And they're like, no. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's actually another chapter in the book. Remember mm-hmm. the Hank Gathers right. chapter. So Hank being another African-American basketball player, star basketball player, he died mm-hmm. on the court from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And he was part of this really high octane offense, the highest scoring offense in NCAA history. And Hank was on medication. And, you know, from what it sounds like, he actually stopped taking it or reduced it because mm-hmm. it was slowing his reaction time down. And so when Hank died, the push for EKG screening was at its peak. And it's still controversial with one camp wanting to prevent these sudden deaths in African-American athletes on the basketball court. Mm -hmm. And the other, as you mentioned, with the over-testing and the false positives and the cost incurred and, you know, this Pandora's box Mm -hmm. of are we picking on, for instance, an African-American male who might otherwise not make it out of the urban socioeconomic class he was in. Mm -hmm. So like Hank made it out of Philadelphia and was potentially on his way to the NBA. Mm -hmm. If Hank was never allowed to play basketball, are we denying him the chance to to get out of the inner city urban area where he has a greater chance of potentially being killed by gun violence? And so you end up in this really ethical dilemma. uh, And that was really the basis for that the chapter on that testing. And even now we have sickle cell trait testing, mm-hmm. um, which again, predominates in African-American males. So we really end up with a potential ethical Pandora's box because of the various athletes that died, such as Hank Gathers and the impetus for screening in response to their death. Mm-hmm. Going back a little bit, I just want to discuss a little bit more. I'm just thinking of, I'm trying to off the top of my head, think of uh, stories about female athletes to food for thought for you. Like the things that come to mind are like, uh, gymnastics and the whole thing that happened with, I want to say, was it University of Michigan mm-hmm. with that physician there, obviously. But I guess the stories I'm thinking about are the, the pressure that young female athletes face in sports like gymnastics. Certainly all sports, you know, young girl athletes face a lot of pressure. But I think gymnastics is kind of unique in, in a certain ways. And that's just only from my personal experience. And then the stories that I follow now, I think a lot are, I you know, read a lot about, you know, Serena pre and post baby. And, you know, the female athletes talking about how 
becoming a mother had changed their the way that they play their sport. And I just think I think those stories are really interesting. And the more that female sports teams seek equal pay out there in in the sports arena, like I wonder how much of that is going to translate into these young athletes deciding to become mothers. And, you know, does that mean they have to leave their sport? Does that mean that they have to forego pay for a while? Does that mean that their governing body is going to have to pay for some of their their pregnancy related costs? It's just a lot of questions that have, have gone through my head. And like you said, there's a lot of ethical conundrums that do sort of fall from that. Yeah, and there's, I mean, like you mentioned, a lot of appearance issues as well, especially with gymnastics. And and it's with males, too, not only females, but males, too. This, mm-hmm. this appearance where you have to look a certain way when you're performing. And, you know, there are certainly these, these we have female athlete syndromes of energy disorders because they're not eating enough. They're burning calories. The hormonal systems are changing. They're getting osteoporosis. They're at high risk for injury. And a part of that is this body dysmorphic issues or diet disorders because of appearance. And it, and it does hit females, uh, but it happens with male performers as well. And, and that's a real big issue that, that needs to be addressed. This whole female athlete syndrome and, and keeping in mind the appearance aspect and the social and psychological pressures involved in that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's yeah, talk a little bit about the future of sports. Um, I mean, the things that I, my favorite question of to, to ask parents of kids who play sports is, are you going to let your kids play football? <laughs> it's like, it's like my number one question. So I guess I'll go ahead and start and ask, are you going to let your boys play football? Yeah. I mean, I didn't play football growing up. I played soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I, I think there was at least one season in high school where I scored more goals with my head than I did with my feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, concussions are a real thing. Um, you know, we certainly are learning more and more about concussions. I think awareness is important. Uh, the pendulum has definitely swung into the, you know, really awareness aspect of things. You know, I think we we have to be able to be able to recognize these things and understand them. The, the hard part is diagnosing concussions or even what's even more interesting with research now is sub-concussive episodes. So first of all, you don't need to lose consciousness to have had a concussion, which is, you know, news to some people, unfortunately. So, you know, they may not realize they have a concussion. They have a headache, light sensitivity, nausea, memory changes. You know, these are all things that show up with concussions, but some of these symptoms don't appear. And then you have multiple sub-concussive episodes that accumulate over time. And, and those may be our next wave of trying to understand how and when this brain injury does occur. I, I do a lot with mixed martial arts and boxing and and that's really one aspect where we have to try and diagnose concussions, mm-hmm. you know, in the minute between rounds. And you can't always do that. So there's a lot of issues when it comes to not only concussion prevention, but diagnosing them in real time. And that's a real challenge when it comes to fast paced sports. That kind of leads into uh, my question of what changes do you see happening in sports today as a result of, you know, all the things we've talked about? And if you could personally make one change happen to better sports, what would it be? So, you know, I think when it comes to sports, you know, education certainly is key. And I think we have to sometimes protect the athlete from themselves. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if it's a youth player or a professional, their job in their mind is to perform better and to win. And we have to sometimes pull them back and and let them know maybe you're overtraining, for instance, or maybe if you're a boxer or an MMA fighter, you're cutting too much weight. Or if you're a youth baseball player, you're throwing through pain when you shouldn't be. And so 
as the parents, the coaches, the teammates around athletes, I think we really need to focus on doing what's best for the athlete. And sometimes that means protecting the athlete from themselves and not contributing to the problem, but preventing the problem. Mm -hmm. That's huge across all of medicine. It's like prevention and education. That's where it all starts and seems to all end from all things. Is there one change you would make in a specific sport or or governing body, something in sports right now that you, you would be like, man, I'd really like to just like change this. This would make things a whole lot better. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I do a lot with mixed martial arts and boxing and, and I've done some research in that arena. And one of the things that is really interesting in the next era of research is weight classes, because we have seen with some of the research we've done that boxers and mixed martial arts fighters, they weigh in at a certain weight, but they're not fighting at that weight. And many of them aren't even fighting each other at the same weight class. So not only are they not fighting at the weight class, but they might be walking into the ring or the octagon in two different weight classes. So the real question of what to do about weight cutting, I think is something that's hard to do because you have a big financial aspect when it comes to weight classes and championships. But we also want to do what's right by the athlete for health and safety. So for me, I think right now, that's probably an under-recognized problem, especially because even though mixed martial arts is one of the fastest growing sports in the world, the medical aspect of things is still farther behind the NFL and Major League Baseball and NBA who have so many players. And one of my mentors from when I was a fellowship, he was one of the original NFL team docs. And he sees where mixed martial arts and boxing is now. And he sees it as the NFL was in the 1970s and those early eras when they were just starting to get real medicine to the athletes. Really, that's for combat sports. That's really the era we need to move into is this very much protecting the athlete and, and listening to physicians, working with trainers and really bringing them into modern medicine because they should be treated like the athletes that they are. What is your advice to healthcare professionals listening who want to pursue a career in sports medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very fulfilling field. I mean, it's challenging, too, because athletes, especially young kids, I mean, today, it's 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 almost like you're talking to professionals with the, the schedules that they have and mm -hmm. trying to figure out the difference in treatment. It's really an art in treating the athlete, talking to the athlete, speaking their language and treating them differently because of whether they're in season or out of season, what sports they have coming up. You know, it's a, it's a very much an art because you don't always have to do the same treatment for the athlete because it might be in season or out of season, for instance. So that's an art. And I think just being an athlete yourself helps to talk the same language as athletes so that they trust you. Uh, but in terms of your, your educational track, I mean, there are different ways to do sports medicine. So I chose the orthopedic track because I wanted to do surgery. So you can do orthopedics and then sports medicine. Mm. But there are also primary care sports medicine tracks. So you can do internal medicine, you can do primary care or family medicine, and then do a primary care sports medicine fellowship as well. And you work hand in hand with the orthopedics. So some things are not surgical, and that's where our primary care partners help. They're the primary care sports medicine docs, whereas they might deal with something that is surgical and they refer back to you. So it's really a tag team effort mm -hmm. and you can get involved in either aspect if you wanted to be a physician. Of course, there are other opportunities, PAs, nurse practitioners, athletic trainers. There are multiple levels and athletic trainers are the ones who see the athletes 
every day, for instance, if they're part of the team, whereas the doc might only see them once a week. So it really depends on how often and how immersed you want to be and what level you want to participate. There are tons, tons of opportunities. Uh, but really, the decision, I think, is, you know, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a surgeon? Do you want to be an athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coach? You know, multiple levels, but you just have to sort of find the right track for yourself and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. As long as there are sports, there's going to be people who have to maintain those athletes. So lots of opportunity for sure. Yes. So is there anything else from your book that you want to talk about or you want to share with the audience? Yeah, I think, you know, the book is really for sports and non-sports fans because every chapter actually has a Cobra effect that takes place outside of sports mm -hmm. because it's an illustration of the Cobra effect and how we can learn from it. And I think going into the book, even understanding that if you're not a sports fan, you're going to learn something about human nature, I think is really the, the aspect I think that that's going to provide the greatest benefit for the book is, is understanding our biases. And while we're not going to be able to eliminate them, I think if we try and recognize them, hopefully we'll make better decisions in the future. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Gelber, for being on Head to Toe. It was wonderful talking with you about your book. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Uh, just for the listeners, tell us where you can find your book. When is it released and um, where where can they go find it? So it was came out the beginning of October. So it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, or your local book dealer. Tiger Woods back and Tommy John's elbow. Injuries and tragedies that transform careers, sports, and society. Jonathan Gelber, sports medicine physician and author. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, I think that's it. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. check the show notes for links to find Dr. Gelber's book. It is a great read for fans of sports who are interested in medicine and for those in medicine who are fans of sports. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Gelber, for being on the show. Thank you to Tara Voschel with Spooked Girl Productions for help with editing. Thanks to Wesley Price for the intro-outro music of today's show. And if you like Head to Toe and want to help me out, be sure to follow, rate, and review the show on your podcast app. More stars is better. Share the show link with a friend or follow me on social media. All of them. I'm just on all of them now. Even Twitter. Uh, yeah, all of them. Go, go check me out on all the social media things. Or if you have a show idea or a guest nomination, you heard something on the show and you're like, hey, I have a friend or a doctor, an RT, a PT, somebody out there in medicine, and they have really great stories. Be sure to email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail on the podcast feedback line, 503-512-0185. So my life is pretty busy at the moment, and I go back to my actual day job at the hospital real soon, so things will be even crazier after that happens. But stay tuned for just a little more Head to Toe Left in 2019, or go back and listen to all the other episodes from the year. They're right there in your podcast feed. You guys are all great. You're all great. Well, except you, Tom Brady. Except you. Until next time, take care.